Hello and welcome to the Lixnall 1752 podcast. I'm here with Shane Connolly. Hello. And Dick Walsh. Hello. And I'm James Moran. And uh, in this episode, we're talking to Rosemary Rockler, who's a, a women's historian. Is that the term? Is that even a term? I think she I think she does, yeah. I don't know if that's yeah. exactly what she calls herself, but she concentrates on women's lives in the 18th century. Yeah. So. And we're talking about Arabella. Denny. Nee Fitzmaurice. Nee Fitzmaurice, yeah. And uh, I think one thing I didn't really get to, I didn't establish all that well at the start of this, is what her lineage was, how exactly she's situated in society at the time. So, Dick, maybe between the two of us, we'll uh, explain who she was. So, she was one of the Fitzmaurices, isn't that right? That's correct, yeah. So, who were the Fitzmaurices and who was she to them? Well... The Fitzmaurices are, are central to the project that we're doing. They're the big family who own 90,000 acres in, in Kerry. And they were historically the barons of Kerry. And then recently her father had became uh, promoted to Earl of Kerry. Mm. He became an Earl. They're like an important gentry family in in this area. So her father was Thomas Fitzmaurice, the first Earl of Kerry. That's right. Yeah. And they were based in Lexnaw. They're based in Ixnaw, yeah. And um, her on her mother's side, the Denny's were a big family. On, no, on, not the no, Denny's. Not the Denny's, the Petties, the Petties. Yeah, yeah they, they, they're that, much more interesting. Well, pretty interesting on the, on the mother's on her on her mother's side. So her mother was Anne Petty. Uh, she married Thomas Fitzmaurice. Anne Petty was a very intelligent woman. Uh, she was good friends with Jonathan Swift of Gulliver's Travels, um, and she she came then from her. Her father was William Petty. Um, mm. So Arabella's grandfather was William Petty. And he did a down survey. He he was an economist and philosopher. Um, and he <clears throat> was a very close associate of Oliver Cromwell. And after Oliver Cromwell came over, he surveyed the entire country in record time. Like it was a huge feat at the time. Like in a couple of years, he, he recorded, he mapped the entire country and precisely decided who owned what. And in the meantime, actually, he discovered 200,000 acres of unclaimed land that nobody owned, and he claimed that for himself. So he got a nice little payoff. 100,000 acres of that was in Kerry. So William Petty, our, um, Anne Petty's fa- uh, father, was the richest man in Kerry. So he did this Arabella thing. was sort of the daughter of probably the richest couple in Kerry. Probably for one sure. of the richest couples in Ireland. One of the richest couples in Great Britain, actually. And she married uh, someone. She married Dinny. Now, I Denny. know the Dinnies are the same family. Like They're like a, a rich Kerry family and mm. <coughs> Dinny sausages not, come from Dinnies. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, He's not all that relevant because he dies pretty quickly. Yeah, and then, yeah. um, the fact that he like, dies is good, though. It's is good for her. It's useful for us yeah. as well. Yeah. It clears it all up. And then she's left with a lot of money. Yes, yeah. Um, so I think from that perspective, this is interesting because uh, I mean it's an interesting story to have a sort of a rich, unburdened woman in that way. You know, she would have had control of her own money, which would have been somewhat unusual. Yeah, she, and she refused of, to get married again because she wanted to keep that status. Mm-hmm. What did she do with her money? Is the question? Is the question? And the, her power and her status? Yeah, yeah. She uh, set up the set wonderful up. charitable no. organization. No. Oh yes. 
<laughs> the knives and laundries. But I don't think they were they weren't the charities as we know. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the Madeleine laundries has been the scene of a lot of. Um, abuse and uh, repression and has not been a good force in Ireland, certainly in the 20th century, probably the 19th century. But I believe she set it up with the best of intentions, right? That's yeah, right. they were set up as um, a home for women, destitute women, or as they're called, fallen women, to go mm. into and sort of become uh, unfallen, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they, uh, it was like a way for them to get back in their feet. Um yeah. I think it's interesting to hear about this because it sort of tells us a certain amount about how the upper class saw themselves in society and maybe their responsibilities to the working class or the poor. Yeah, and, and for me, it's still strange, I have to admit, because she's still going to all these swanky parties. She's still minted. So, like, she's seen as this great person for charity, but she never leaves her wonderful life as an upper class Mm. So it sounds like she was unusually, from talking to Rosemary, was, she's unusually involved in the charity at a one-to-one mm. level. Okay, she spent a lot of time in there caring for, I think, for, uh, for people and stuff. Not a lot, but probably more than anyone else, you know. I'm sure yeah. she wasn't slumming it with the rest of them, but... Uh, yeah, 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 I, that's, that is true, that is true. It, it just wasn't just like she went to the parties and she fundraised, um, like Ivanka Trump. She was actually in there, uh, in the hospital making sure it was run right and yeah. uh, meeting the, pa- the patients, I was going to say, but the, the residents. Mm. Yeah, so it's not it's not so bad as I seem to. Yeah, so you have someone who is obviously somewhat caring, but has no interest in, you know, examining the structure of society. She's not trying to, like, yeah. bring about any revolution or something. She's just trying to make people's lives slightly more bearable. Mm. Um, so I think that's an interesting place to jump into it. Yeah. Petty herself was a very interesting woman because she'd grown up as William Petty's only daughter and probably his favourite child and had been educated alongside her brothers. So she was highly intelligent and cultured. And then she marries Thomas Fitzmaurice, who was uh, pretty tyrannical, I think. Um, Okay. And um, they they weren't a very well-matched pair. It, it, her, her Their nephew actually says that he made an excessive bad husband. So mm. I, I don't think it can have been a, a very happy household. He was also a, a tyrant both in the countryside around because, of course, he was a great figure in the, the country. And uh, so he was known for his tyranny around the, the uh, around Kerry, but he was also a tyrant at home. So uh, given to, to given to rages and um, eccentricities and strange ideas. So that was the kind of household that um, Arabella would have would have been born into. OK, um, we, uh, we were talking to a guy, John Knightley, and we were trying to figure out... Mm. We knew um, Fitzmaurice was a tyrant at home. Oh, mm-hmm. was he? A ty- he was a tyrant in the general sense as well, was he? Oh, he was. Yes, yes. He, he. I think he was very much still a sort of feudal lord. Um, there's one story I can't remember where it comes from that when he sat in in court, uh, that um, he'd have his riding whip with him. And rather than bother with sort of imposing fines or imprisonments, that he'd simply give his own punishment with his riding whip. Really? So, um, 
he he was very much um, his own his own ruler down there. Okay, and that was sort of was it, that was a bit old fashioned, was it? Wouldn't you say? I, I think it probably was. Yes, I think I think it was. Um, as I say, harking back almost to a kind of a, a feudal idea mm. of of a lord. Um, and so Arabella Denny, her grandfather was William Petty. Her grandfather was William Petty. Um, who, of course, would have been an entirely different type of person. Uh, he came from a humble background um, and had sort of scraped together an education, but was very brilliant. Um, and um, eventually came to Ireland with the Cromwellian forces um, and um, mapped Ireland, hence the Down Survey. He was responsible mm. for the Down Survey. And um, for his part in that, he was given uh, lands throughout uh, Ireland. And the, the major part of the lands, of course, were down in, in Kerry. Um, so you're talking really about two, uh, two great families in Kerry. One of them, the oldest established Fitzmaurice family in the, the north of the county, largely. And then William Petty, the new, the new English coming in uh, with his great uh, tranche of land. Um, and so the, the the marriage really between Anne Petty um, and uh, Thomas Fitzmaurice was, I suppose, a dynastic one to, to join together those two families. Okay, and that's where Arabella was born into. It, that was what she was born into. She had two uh, when, two surviving brothers anyway, and three sisters. Um, and of course, the, the the marriages of the daughters were kind of designed as well to um, increase. Uh, the the the, fa- the Fitzmaurice family's influence. Uh, so one of the daughters married a Crosby, um, another married a Colthurst from I think uh, Cork, and um, Arabella married uh, Arthur Denny of Tralee Castle. Okay, and um, so when you were talking about how she was cultured and uh, raised in a cultured way, what what was seen as cultured for the time, if you know what I mean. Well, it, it, she would have learned uh, sort of the, the, the kind of accomplishments um, and the sort of learning that, that a well-brought-up young lady would would have. So she would have learned languages. Um, she would have had accomplishments like music and drawing. She, she actually was a, a, a very good singer, apparently. Even in old age, there's a description of her singing with a very sweet voice. Um, and she would have learned how to run a large establishment um, like uh, the old court at, at Lixnaw. And of course, that was something that she would later be able to bring into um, her own married life, but also later on into her charitable enterprises, because after all, running a charitable establishment wasn't entirely different from, say, running a great household of the time. Mm-hmm. And was that normal for the time to be basically have a, a woman educated like that? I think... Uh, I think she was probably fortunate in having a mother who was already educated um, and who would have... And, uh, her mother, for instance, was a friend of, of Swift, um, so she was very much part of the, the sort of cultured life of the time. So I think she was fortunate in that way. But uh, girls of that class would at least have had uh, an education in accomplishments of, of that sort. 
Okay. The idea, the idea really was that they should be able to be um, good wives and um, uphold their, their husband's position um, and uh, also sort of make a, a creditable figure in, in social circles. Okay. And were they being seen as a partner to their husband? If I mean, if Arabella was, I think in- that would. I think that would depend very much on the the partnership. Mm. Um, certainly, Arabella's uh, grandmother Elizabeth Petty, who married William Petty, was very much his partner, and that was a remarkably close relationship. She married. She was an Anglo-Irish um, lady. Um, she'd previously been married and widowed and she married William Petty and it appears to have been a love match Um, but they uh, very much worked together um, to um, maintain his various interests and in fact at one stage he sent her to to Kerry it's a very interesting episode Uh, he sends her to Kerry because he couldn't travel himself Mm. and uh, asks her to report on his um, enterprises there so that is an example really where you see a, a couple working together. Then with Thomas Fitzmaurice and Anne Petty, um, the various observers remarked that, that she um, actually managed to uh, sort of safeguard his fortune, educate the children, um, keep up the family's credit, if you like, where he was rather um, where he, he was really such an eccentric character, but that while she lived. Um, the the family uh, were able to maintain its position. So it did very much depend on the partnership. Then when when Arabella married um, Arthur Jenny, uh, again, it doesn't seem to have been a match made in heaven. Arabella was highly intelligent, uh, cultured. um, She she married this man who, um, I think the the account of him says that he was a very good sort of man, but uninformed and ignorant. So um, it 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 doesn't sound as if they had a huge much in common, a huge amount in common. She seems to have got on well with her mother in law, who uh, was Letitia uh, Denny. Um, and she speaks of her with great affection later on. Um, but um, they would have... Uh, there, there is one odd story about her early married life, and um, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Um, apparently, um, Arthur Jenny's brother, Thomas Jenny, um, made uh, subjected her to some sort of harassment or persecution. We don't know what it was. Um, Could have been sexual harassment of some kind. Mm. And it drove her to such a state that she apparently went and learned to fire a pistol. And then she lured him to a a retired spot and showed him how she could fire the pistol and said that if he didn't leave her alone, that um, she would come behind him, was how she put it, because he'd made her careless of her own life and um, essentially warned him off and apparently he left her alone after that. So it's an, it's a really yeah. interesting story, I think. Um, but it does, apart from anything else, it does show her sort of determination and her self-reliance um, yeah. at that stage. I think that's interesting. I think when we think back in this time, we have a incident to like simplify everything 
Mm-hmm. So we come up with this idea that women were completely and utterly downtrodden, you know? Yes, and, and so much depends on circumstances yeah, exactly. and on the personalities of those who were involved. Um, yeah. I mean, that was a situation which could have ended up with her as a victim. Yes, of course. She, she managed to, to uh, turn, the, turn the tables. Yeah, and there's... And, and of course, it may have helped as well that her family, that Thomas Fitzmaurice, whatever his faults, was a powerful figure in the locality and that he was only a few miles out the road. Um, yeah, yes. Certainly that would have given her, her a standing. Um, and I suppose the interaction as well between the very fa- various families could be very interesting because you've got the uh, Fitzmaurices who are the old anglo Norman family, long, long established in the the area. You have the Denny's who came in um, sort of in the, the Elizabethan period. So mm-hmm. again, they're quite they're quite nouveau, uh, if you like. And then you have the very nouveau riche uh, Petties um, who have only been there really a, a, a few a quarter of a century, well, half a century, um, really. Uh, half a century would have been seen as still nouveau riche, would it? Very, very much nouveau riche, <laughs> and they were very rich. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a it's an interesting moment as well in in Irish history where you see those the the various uh, forces really. Uh, would the length of time have its own cachet? You know that that the family had been there. Like, was there a hierarchy based on how old the families were, essentially? I suppose there was. I suppose there was a certain snobbery about new new money then, as there there would always be. Mm. Um, but then, of course, you do get alliances. Um, you you get the the, the various um, groups um, allying themselves by marriage, as I said, the, the yeah. Denny's and the. Um, the Denny's and the Fitzmaurice's, the Fitzmaurice's and the, the Petty's. So um, they 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 made their own accommodation, I suppose, with, yeah. with the new families who came in. Um, actually, when we were talking to uh, another guy called uh, Joe Harrington, mm-hmm. we were talking about the idea of marriage. And mm-hmm. you used the term love match uh, a few minutes mm-hmm. ago. And was that to say that the... the that couple married for love at maybe the cost, at some financial cost or giving up some material opportunity. Like basically what I'm saying is, did they just marry for love or was it a coincidence? Oh, Lord, no. No, no, no. I think that was probably the exception. I think the Petty's, I think the Petty's relationship is is quite interesting. She, as I say, had been married before there, so they were both reasonably mature when they married it was his first mm. marriage um and her background wasn't very uh, wasn't very, that desirable her father had been uh, one of the regicides he'd signed um charles the first death warrant oh. um so he was he was essentially in disgrace from 1660 on he, mm. he unlike some of the other regicides he wasn't uh, executed but he was imprisoned um, so uh, her her family background wasn't particularly desirable, but um, I think I think definitely you can tell that there is a great um, a great attachment between them. But I think that uh, that I think was 
probably exceptional, I think, um, in the case of families from that particular um, uh, strata of society, um, uh, reasons of um, alliance and um, money, of course, and land would come into it. Okay. So what would Arabelle's life have been like as a child in the area? Do you know? It's impossible to tell. We have very yes. little information on, on children's lives. We do know that um, she and uh, her siblings did go to London sometimes and to Dublin with their mother. I think probably their mother spent more time with them than, than Thomas did. Um, they would have been educated at home. But we really don't know very much about, mm-hmm. about children's lives. I suppose it's probably relatively recently that we've started actually thinking about what children's experience is like. I think so, yeah. And and it's so hard in any case to recapture um, that because um, the accounts that you have, after all, are written by adults who are looking Mm. back to their their own childhood. Now, her her nephew, um, Arabella's nephew, William, um, who was more or less abandoned by his own family, did grow up at Lixnaw as well. And he, uh, under the care of Thomas Fitzmaurice, his grandfather, mm. and he paints a pretty miserable picture of his life there, um, living with his grandfather, and says that uh, the only comfort that he got really was from his his Aunt Arabella, with whom he formed a bond at that stage. One of the, uh, speaking about children, actually, one of the things that I do wonder about um, in Arabella's case is she didn't have children. Um, mm. she and Arthur were married for what about uh, 15 years or so and there was there were no children and um, I do wonder if the lack of children was one of the things that later on um, drove her to um, concern for the for the foundlings and also she she tended in later life to essentially adopt younger um, relatives um, there are two or three of three young women that she she took a very close interest in, and one of them, Catherine Fitzmaurice, actually stayed with her for the for the rest of her life, and essentially uh, became her carer in old age. And at some stage, she she says to her sister, she talks about having Catherine Fitzmaurice with her, and uh, she says, "So you see, I have I had no children of my own, but now I have." Um, these are my children. Um, so I think it must have been a grief to her that she didn't have children. And I suppose as well a disappointment um, at a time when people would have expected to be able to hand on their, their land to the next generation. Yeah, I suppose it would have been seen as a, like a, a political disadvantage as well, not to have... And, uh, and, and possibly, possibly, although we don't know, possibly a failure on the woman's part. Mm. Um, the, the tendency might have been, but I'm only speculating there. Um, yeah. But it's it obvious the lack that her childlessness was obviously something that was in her mind. Okay, and um, so to move on, your your uh, field of interest would be charity in the uh, around this time. Yeah, that w- that was how I first um, came on her. Um, uh, first of all, 
she she started her charitable um, enterprises down in Kerry as a as a young woman. Either I'm not sure whether it was before her marriage or immediately afterwards. But we hear about a dispensary that she had at Lixnaw. So that was probably when she was just a young woman, and she may have been taking it. She may have been um, emulating her own mother, who probably was doing exactly the same thing. So she had a an apothecary shop, as they call it, uh, where she used to dispense. Um, medicines to the the poor of of Lake Snow. Um, and then um, when she went, to, she moved to Dublin after her husband's death. Another telling thing: after her husband died, um, she apparently had various other offers of marriage. Mm. And uh, again, her nephew, who's who's a good source of information on her, says she had too much. She she turned them all down because she had too much. Um, sense ever to become a slave again. Okay. So that may say that may say something yeah. too about the um, nature of her marriage. Yeah, it does um, a lot, doesn't it? It does. Now, when her husband died, she she did express you know all the proper um, sorrow and so on. Um, but you do wonder uh, what, mm. what the, the relationship was like. In any case, uh, after he died, she she moved to Dublin. And so she had a very long widowhood, really, um, from um, 1742 to... Uh, she had a 50-year widowhood, half-century of widowhood. And um, she really devoted herself then to travel for the, the, the first couple of decades of, of that period. And uh, entertaining, she became very much a, a figure in Dublin's social scene and good works of various kinds, um, which is, is where her, her reputation really rests. And so her mother was involved in charity, and so was it a normal thing? I, I, think, I, I think her mother must have been, I think that must okay. have been, she, she must have been carrying on what would have been very much the practice of the time that you would you would sort of look after the, um, the uh, poor in your own neighbourhood and on your own estate. Um, so I think that was where a lot of women actually uh, first uh, became involved in in sort of good works. And what was what would you say the philosophy behind that that level of charity was? Um, I think I think there was, uh, as there always is. I think there was probably a mixture of um, motivations. Um, there was sort of the Christian. The, the Christian um, uh, teaching, you know, that you you do mm. good and you you uh, suffer the poor and the, the needy and so on. So there there was that. Um, I suppose there was a degree of self interest um, that um, you look after the disadvantaged um, to to in a sense um, create a sense of um, obligation towards you. Um, you know that it 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 was in a way safeguarding um, the stability of, yeah. of society, um, and as far as the situation in in Dublin is concerned, I think uh, during the 18th century you also have um, sort of urbanisation. So you have the growth of um, towns and particularly of cities like Dublin. So you have um, the the poor gravitating towards. Um, those areas towards Dublin. So 
there's a, a greater um, incidence of poverty, but also the poor are more obvious. They're, they're, they're apparent, they're on the streets, um, creating both concerns for security and also um, a kind of an impulse to do, to do something to relieve uh, poverty. Um, one of the things we were, we're thinking a lot about is, like around this time, there's a move to pasture farming, uh, we believe, mm. which would have created a lot of unemployment because... To, uh, and, and those would have been the kind of people who, who turn up in Dublin looking okay. for... And and the other uh, the other large or uh, growing um, urban areas um, looking for employment. That's interesting. We're we're sort of trying to figure out what was happening uh, at the time mm. with all the unemployment, you know. And uh, mm. I suppose it makes and, sense. And of course, when, when pre- people move away from their own area, when people move to a city, they are lacking the sort of support structures mm. that they might have had family support structures local community support structures so they're kind of in a way cast into outer darkness in a sense um and um I, I, that that is one of the the things that's happening i think well, were there any big towns in Kerry or in Munster apart from Cork obviously Cork 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 was the main one yeah, um, Limerick, I suppose, would have been growing uh, Waterford. Okay, um, but but the trend would certainly be towards the the larger the larger towns. Yes. Um. So, Arabelle's main charity work was the. Well, she started up. It was a period, as I say, because of because of these various factors. It was a period where you've got various um, initiatives starting up. So, first of all, she became involved, for instance, in the lying in hospital. That now there are Tonja Bartholomew Mosses lying oh, in yeah. hospital, yeah. Uh, where uh, poor women went to to have their their babies. Mm. Uh, so that's one. That again, that's a response to to need at the time. Um, she became involved in the Dublin Society, now the RDS. Um, which was concerned with things like um, promoting um, Irish um, agriculture and trade and industry. Um, so you have an interest in things like uh, linen, the linen industry, um, textile industry. Um, and she, over the years, she she was um, a patron through the, the through her Dublin Society involvement to um, sort of Irish carpet makers and um, uh, artists and that that kind of thing. So, uh, she she actually was the first honorary member and the first woman member of the Dublin Society. So you can okay. see there she's she's becoming very much a, a figure in in Dublin high society at that point. Would she have had an interest in uh, in the practices that were promoted? You know, say like linen or uh, I think so. Yes, because um, linen would have been um, flax would have been grown on some of the um, some of the estates. Uh, so she would have been familiar with that. She she had a great friendship, for instance, with Lady Caldwell um, up in um, Fermanagh, Balik, you know that area there, mm. and they certainly had had interests in the the linen industry, um, and. It, there was this idea of improvement. She 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 very much fed into that idea of improving um, improving um, 
industries and things around the country. Yeah. As, as a way as a way of um, increasing prosperity generally, and you know, helping uh, helping people on the ground. That's interesting because we were we were talking to another guy, John Knightley. I mentioned him before about mm-hmm, improvement, yeah. and he was talking about the idea that they were intellectually interested in improvement. You know, that yes, they're quite excited by the science, but. I know. I suppose it makes sense that they saw it also as a way to improve people's lives on the ground. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think she she would have been very much part of that, and the Dublin Society that that would have been a kind of a central plank of the the Dublin Society's work. Um, so so I think that's that's what's going on there. Um, but then in uh, she she then uh, went on a trip to um she traveled abroad a bit she went to london a couple of times and but she also made quite um a, a more adventurous if you like um grand tour in europe okay. and you see her visiting there she she visits various uh, charitable enterprises and things there and then in um the 1750s, she became involved in the Foundling Hospital. The, okay. the Foundling Hospital was, uh, it was a department, really, they called it, of the Dublin Workhouse. And it was um, a public institution. Um, it had a huge board of governors, something like 175 governors, but none of them seemed to have paid a great deal of attention to, to the actual um routine or conditions at the institution, which were appalling because it was publicly funded. You get regular reports to Parliament about Mm. conditions at the um, founding hospital. And they were really dreadful. The the mortality rate was extremely high. Um, Foundlings were uh, brought in not just from Dublin, but from all over the country. And they were there taken to Dublin in really awful conditions, sort of the references to um, donkeys with with, um, baskets on their back full of babies, just dreadful. Um, uh, um, Sorry? Sorry, just a a foundling, uh, it's uh, an abandoned child, is it? An abandoned child, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, And... um, so, so the, the, this institution was here in the in Dublin, and um, there was obviously a pressing need for reform. So she reacted, probably in response to one of these parliamentary inquiries, that on uncovered conditions too horrible for the ear, as as they say somewhere. Okay. And uh, she first of all set up a committee of uh, ladies, and the idea was that they would go in and. Because we're getting back here to the skills that women were expected to have, because they would have the skills to run an institution, that they Mm. would go in and oversee reform. But in fact, most of the other ladies dropped out and she was left to um, oversee the the institution. And she brought about, she was involved with it for about 20 years and brought about real change there. The, The mortality rate dropped halved, I think, when she was there. Um, she um, employed more nurses, um, introduced uh, greater supervision of the, the staff in the institution. And also um, a lot of, uh, there was practice of sending children out um, to board in, in um, you know, uh, other homes 
um, who who would obviously get some money for for looking after them. But initially, a lot of those children actually just disappeared. Um, really? So she introduced more oversight on that. And um, one of the one of the sort of more tangible things is she apparently introduced um, a, a clock. Um, she said that uh, children, um, small babies, needed to be fed often. So she introduced a clock which chimed every twenty minutes, and when it chimed, that uh, the children were all to be fed, um, so that you know they they, um, they get regular nourishment. So the um, so she was very hands on. So they sort of weren't being fed basically was one of the issues no no i mean it was the the as i say the conditions were just unbelievably um unbelievably dreadful um and, and um, there was neglect but there was also active cruelty and uh, brutality and what would have happened say if a child survived and left what well, the idea was the idea was that they would uh, be taken in and that they would learn um, trades uh, to enable them to to get a, a livelihood. Uh, there were both boys and girls, and both of them would have been given sort of the the, the um, training that you know was taught proper to to their particular gender. Okay. Um, and uh, but but of course, most of a lot of them didn't ever survive to to go out. Um, mm. But um, that that was the idea that they should be trained. I suppose with all these things, there's an element of, of punishment as well, um, or is there? Well, there, in in that case, I think the the sort of general attitude to illegitimacy, the the um, disapproval of illegitimacy, uh, fed into both the fact that you have foundlings um, in the first place, and also later on um, the the fact that they were foundlings probably um, didn't uh, make people particularly sympathetic towards them anyway, but also having been brought up in this really unsatisfactory and appalling institution, they wouldn't have been particularly desirable as employees anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so they they didn't have very much hope of a future. And in fact, I think that may be one of the things that um, directed her attention next towards prostitutes and fallen women. Because first of all, a lot of the children who came in would have been the children of what they would describe as fallen women. Um, But also a lot of the girls who went out probably ended up on the streets because they would have been... Um, they wouldn't have been able to find any other employment. Just a, a note, these would have been Protestant. Uh, I, I know the Rotunda is a Protestant hospital. And um, did it matter to them who came in? Were the children raised as Well, no, no. The children, the children would have been, uh, yes, raised as Protestants. Um, okay. As far as they were raised, I don't know yeah. how effective it ever was. But but that as well, that would have been another factor that would have turned um, a lot of um, Dubliners against, or, or would have meant that Dubliners had had less um, sympathy for them because it would have been regarded as a proselytizing institution. I see. Uh, but then, interestingly, later on. Um, in Lady Arabella's own institution, the the Magdalen Asylum, um, there that cho- they took in both Protestants and Catholics, 
Um, and it was a Protestant institution, but they don't seem to have gone in for proselytizing to, to any great extent. Okay. And, and what year did she start the Magdalene Asylum? She, she started the Magdalene Asylum in uh, 1767, I think it was. It opened um, opened in Leeson Street. And um, she said afterwards that, that um, the, the care of it was kind of forced upon her, but I don't know whether that was true or not. She was certainly involved in it right from the very beginning. And as I say, you, you have the, we have the registers now, um, mm. where you can actually see her uh, entries right through um, every day with, with um, people coming in. Now, it wasn't ever a particularly big institution. I reckon there was no more than about um, 12 or 13 people, uh, women living in it at a time. Um, but um, it was the first such institution in Ireland. There had been similar ones in on the continent, um, and that's why I think her her visit to Europe might have have had a part there, mm. and uh, also in in London. Um, but it was the first the first such home in um, in Dublin, and and the other the other significant thing I think about it was that it was from the beginning very much a female-run institution. When she was in the Foundling Hospital, she, through strength of will, really, uh, she was able to bring about um, various reforms, but she always had to deal with the male, the all-male Board of Governors and with Parliament, who who gave the money. But once she had her own private institution, she was in charge, and she actually set up... um, a, a board of governesses, as they were called, um, they were um, various women, um, aristocratic and gentry women, um, who used to visit the home and um, take an interest in the girls and um, it, it, it instruct them sometimes, and later on often give them jobs. And one of the, the things there that is happening is that you get women who actually weren't in there as governesses, but who later on set up their own charitable um, institutions. So it's it's kind of a, a knock-on effect um, mm-hmm. that she's, she's producing a body of women who um, are interested in charitable activity and are, who are getting training in the, the running of um, institutions like that. So who are the women going in? Uh, who would be the recipients? Like you say, fallen well, they, they varied uh, hugely. Um, most of them, I think you could say, were poverty-stricken. They, they, mm. they came in. Um, in I, I should say that the, uh, the registers are hugely informative because they give the name of the woman um, they give the uh, they say what clothes or what uh, possessions she came in with, so you get some idea of her her background. They sometimes give more information uh, about what work she'd done or what tra- training she'd had, or if in some cases if she was literate, her literacy level, um, and sometimes other little details about her family or um, her background. So we do get some idea. Um, most of them do seem to have been driven in by by sort of need or infirmity. So you get accounts of uh, women coming in in rags, um, wearing um, nothing 
that uh, didn't have to be burned. So essentially, you know, really at the at the very lowest point of their fortunes. And of course, that could have been what what drove them into the Magdalen Asylum. They were supposed to um, have to be sort of entirely penitent and resolved to to give up their way of life and to to um, uh, live, you know, a godly and respectable life in in the future. But there may also have been other factors, illness or um, uh, dire poverty that, that drove right. them in. Uh, but then you do get a few instances of women uh, who clearly came from another background. There was one, for instance, who spoke French. So that suggests Ooh. that either she'd um, grown up um, in a, a reasonably prosperous household or maybe she had travelled. Um, you get others who come in with actually quite um, a an array of goods, uh, books, um, clothes. One of them had 12 gowns, which in those days would have been really quite uh, quite a, an extensive wardrobe. Um, one came in with silver silver um, teaspoons. Um, okay. And the, my, favorite, my favorite one, I think, came in with a red silk gown, uh, a white riding habit, and a hat with a feather. And I, I always think if you went back to the 18th century, you couldn't look for a, a better sort of capsule wardrobe than that. Yeah. And what was going on there? Was that, um, was she being sent there, do you think, or was it just a genuine? Or, or she could have had a, a reasonably prosperous past life. She might have been somebody's mistress and accumulated. Oh, I see. Stuff, yeah, or or she may have come from a from a middle class background. Again, as I say, you you sometimes get accounts of their background. So uh, you some of them would have come from sort of um, tradesmen's or merchants' families. There was one I remember who was uh, whose um, father was a hatter um, in Dublin. Um, so the, it was very varied, and of course. It's it's said it's it's um, it was announced that it was for penitent prostitutes. Not all of them, I think, were probably prostitutes in the sense that they'd necessarily been on the streets. They may simply have been girls who had fallen foul of the the moral code in some way, or okay. um, um, there was one, for instance, um, who was. Who, who actually was regarded as a sort of a special case, she'd married a man who turned out to be married already. So she mm. was really a, entirely a victim um, of, of bigamy. Um, so there was a why, and, and later on, um, the house, uh, the house as it was called, the institution, mm. um, was um, designed, was said to be designed for girls after a first fall. So that would have been, you know, really girls who who just sort of, in inverted commas, erred once. And right. So some of them, as I say, the, the, the stories behind them are obviously very varied. Mm. Um, but penitence would have been seen as... Uh, well, they, they were, penitence was essential, mm. of course. You know, it's easy enough, I suppose, to claim penitence if if you need to get in. I, I mean, you can you can sometimes you can flesh out the stories. There's one woman who came in, was there for a while, and then a soldier arrived 
and she insisted on leaving to go with him. Now, there possibly what's happening is that she was living with this soldier that he may have been um, sent elsewhere and that in his absence she needed some sort of um, maintenance. So she goes into the asylum and, you know, okay. leaves again. Um, so you, sometimes there are those kind of stories that... And, and I also wonder sometimes, um, for instance, things like bad weather or illness... Um, could could drive um, women in there as well. Um, bad, who, b- bad weather. Well, in the depths of winter, for instance. Oh, um, I see, if yeah. you haven't got a, if you haven't got anywhere to go, um, maybe you go to the to the Magdalen Asylum and, and claim um, claim refuge there. So people would have been aware that like there were charities. They would have been familiar with charities. The people on the receiving end. You know, oh yes! Yeah. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Absolutely! Yeah, um, they would have been aware of the the existence of of this place um, as yeah. as something that they could they could seek refuge. It's much later on, but I know during the famine, these sort of charities mm-hmm. were were outlawed. You know, uh, or at least discouraged. Would that make sense? Mm. Or have I gotten that wrong? No, I'm not quite sure what you're. Um, maybe I just read something that wasn't true. Uh, I heard that um, the government discouraged, basically wanted the Irish people to um, uh, become self-reliant. And it saw these charities as um, counter to that. Yeah, I, I, I don't really know uh, what you're referring to there, because certainly the 19th century w- was when charities really mushroomed. They were... They were, oh, interesting! For absolutely everything, so I'm I'm not sure. Um, no, it may have been an individual instance or something. I'm not I'm not sure. What. Sometimes with the famine, there are all these political rumours where people want mm. to make England seem as cruel as possible. You know, so it could have just been mm. something like that. Mm. Well, the, the, yeah, the 18th century, anyway, is, a, is sort of a different a different story. So, uh, what uh, what would be the government's uh, approach to these charities? Do they, or do they have any? Where they just well, I think the government were probably quite um, quite happy to see um, that it, as, long as, as long as it wasn't costing them anything. Um, mm. And Lady Arabelle was was fortunate, really, in having useful contacts. That was that was one of her her great advantages. As I say, she was part of uh, the Dublin social scene, so she she actually used to attend dinners at at uh, the Lord Lieutenant's table in in Dublin Castle. Um, her nephew, the nephew that she was so close to, briefly became prime minister in in uh, the UK. So um, she she did have all these useful contacts. She had people that she could approach uh, for assistance. And um, they used to come to the uh, to the asylum and visit it, buy buy some of the the uh, goods made by the girls. And I should say that that the um, the regime within the the charity within the Magdalen Asylum, uh, while penitence was the the, the main um, the main requirement that you should you should um, say that you you repented your past life, and there was a sort of an element of a punitive a, um, a punitive attitude within the place. The girls, for instance, were known by numbers, and um, oh, really? 
Yeah, but that was partly, I think, um, a, a thing for confidentiality. Um, they they did uh, record their their um, their own names as well, um, and they in the chapel because there was a chapel adjoining the chapel. Uh, there was a screen. The girls used to sit behind the screen uh, so that they couldn't be seen. Again, not sure whether that's punitive or whether it was again to preserve their their confidentiality. But what what I do always like to stress is that it wasn't somewhere that you went into and you never came out of again. Mm-hmm. The idea was the idea was that you went in, you received training, um, you repented of, of your past, but you also received training and that was hugely important. And the idea was that the training should enable you to earn an honest livelihood in the future. So the average length of stay was only about two years. Um, and then they went out and the, the, the requirement was that they should either go out to earn an earn a honest livelihood on their own account um, or they should be received back by their family. So every effort was made to ensure that that happened. I see. And what sort of work? Were so, they? so there was a kind of a, a, there was at least an element of constructiveness in the, in yeah. the um, idea. What sort of work were they been trained in? It was mainly sewing. Most of those who went in who claimed some kind of training um, said that they had sewing skills of some sort, plain sewing. Um, there were other skills as well. There were there were actually um, a lot of them were in the, the clothing and textile trades, but you also had cooks, for instance, or domestic servants, or one woman actually claimed to be a sailor to have served as a sailor for five really? years. Really fascinating little story, yeah. Um, again, we don't know anything more, but it's just so so uh, such an intriguing little um, detail. Yeah, I, I um, think that would have been unusual. To, oh, all. yes, I think it probably would, but it's intriguing that it, it happened at yes. all. Yes, yeah. Um, but yes, most of them, the, the kind of jobs that were available to women in any case were very restricted. Essentially, you were talking about the needle trades, either plain sewing or more um, more um, skilled um, uh, sewing, like mantua makers and so on. Um, or, uh, so it was, it was either the, the needle trades or it was domestic service. Um, so those were the kind of skills that uh, they they were trained in, and then they they went out into into that those kind of um, those kind of jobs. And of course, the the women who took an interest either as governesses or as as subscribers, because again we have lists of subscribers, um, often came up with jobs with with um, places, as they say, for these girls. So they went to work in in their households. Okay, so there would have been a, a trust, I suppose, built between them. Like, they, they, they were... Yes, yeah, in in the sense that that these um, these women were um, taking an interest in in the uh, the um, progress of the girls and uh, providing jobs for them. Yes, they they were supporting the institution in that way, I suppose. Um, and I, maybe it's impossible to say, but what a lot of these women would. We were talking earlier about uh, unemployed labourers. Do you mm. think they would have come in from the countryside or are they mostly Dublin? These women? Yes. Some of them did, yes. Some of them did. We we do hear that some of them came from, you know, 
they 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 actually list um parts of the country that they come from um but quite a few of them they they would say that they came from Dublin or so on. we don't always have uh, we don't always have the the those kind of details but it, mm-hmm. it does seem to have been it seems to have been both of them yeah for instance you get um sometimes uh, girls not that many actually but a few girls claim dairy skills so they were obviously you know milkmaids or yeah uh, in uh, making butter and that kind of thing I think that's that's interesting to us. We're we're thinking about this period as a time of change, you know. Mm. Uh, so those ideas of the knock-on repercussions, you know, women going to the uh, to the cities and maybe ending up in these the asylum or in these charities is yeah. Well, the, the trouble is, I think that a lot uh, the the needle trades and domestic service they both they're both poorly paid. Mm. They're insecure. Um, and of course, um, in the case of domestic service, particularly, um, once you're out of a job, you're also out of a home. So yes. you're literally on the on the street. You're also open as well, of course, to exploitation, um, sexual exploitation as well. That um, was a, a a big threat for women at the it time. It was, of course, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so. Actually, when when you talk about prostitution, probably a lot uh, you're not talking in a lot of cases about somebody who is a prostitute throughout their life. You're talking about it as as a resource in a sense when women have no other um, no yeah. other um, income coming in. And was it illegal? Was prostitution illegal at the time? It was in a sense. the The idea was that they were a public nuisance, really. Right. Um, so um, it was the, the 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 tendency previously had been to sort of uh, contain the problem, mm. um, and it's really only in the 18th century that you get the idea, uh, you get a sort of a, an acceptance of the fact that it's need and destitution that are driving women to that and that you've got while, while they're still very much regarded as sinners, but there's uh, an acceptance of the fact that they should be provided with some other training so that they don't have to resort to to that um, particular um, contingency. And there's even, interestingly, in, in some of the sermons, for instance, there's even an acceptance of the sort of double standard that, uh, you know, um, while um, women suffer the consequences of this, um, in inverted commas, sin, mm-hmm. um, those who had um, exploited them escape scot free, um, but you're, it's it, it, it's the charity is aimed at, if you like, providing a sticking plaster rather than changing society. Um, yeah. So they've got to, they're they're working with uh, with society as it is rather mm. than trying to change it. Yeah. It's a it's a pragmatic approach, but it's not the most. It is, uh, yes, yes, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for doing this. It was a. Uh, it's hard to get uh, a good view of women's history, you know, generally, but particularly around mm-hmm. this time. So yes, the, the earlier period is is more difficult to to read. Yeah. I think. So it's great to hear, you know, even like just from every level, like we were talking about. Um, Thomas Fitzmaurice, 
and all the accounts sort of focus on him, and it's good to get like the the female perspective on the on the home, you know. But even well, I, I think I think in his case, I think Lady Kerry is such an interesting character. Yes, um, um, probably would would repay further further investigation. Um, uh, and it's interesting as well that you've got that sort of matriarchal line almost of, mm-hmm. of strong women coming through um, in at least three generations. And even hearing about the, like what destitution did to women as opposed to men, you know, is always... Mm-hmm. I know, it's just been... I really enjoyed the conversation. I think it's great. Good. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for doing it. Thanks. Thanks.